What's up, family? You are tuned into Law and Disorder, a podcast where we expose the cracks in our system, agitate for resistance, and collectively build a new world in which all of us can thrive. Black Lives Matter is a global movement whose impact on the struggle for Black liberation cannot be overstated. Like with any movement, it has had its share of struggle and controversy, some of that due to missteps that all folks thrust into leadership make as they try to find their way. Much of that due to the state's interference and deliberate attempts to destroy organizing and organizers in the Black community. For transparency, I was a founding member of Black Lives Matter Bay Area, and though that chapter is no longer functioning, I remain tied to the organization, its organizers, and committed to the mission. Due to my role in the work against state terror, primarily through the Anti-Police Terror Project, I get a lot of questions when controversy hits news headlines. My take is that there's a lot of misinformation out there and confusion about what's happening. And this matters because it's a distraction from the actual work, work that is about the business of fighting for, defending, and liberating Black life. So today, we're going to clear some things up, set some records straight, and get back focused on the work. We're joined this morning by my friend, comrade, sister from another mister, Dr. Melina Abdullah, a professor and the chair of the Pan-African Studies at Cal State Los Angeles. She is also the co-founder of the LA chapter of Black Lives Matter and co-founder and director of Black Lives Matter Grassroots. Good morning, Melina. Good morning, Sister Kit. Thank you so much for having me. And it's always great to hear your voice. It puts my soul at ease when I talk to you. Same, same. And I've been wanting to have this conversation with you for a long time, but I think the timing uh, is actually right uh, for us to be able to go deep on this right now. Emily, I actually want to go all the way back to the beginning. I would like you to spend some time talking about the origins of Black Lives Matter. Sure. So Black Lives Matter um, was birthed through boots on the ground. So many people have read the history and the history is super important. It's super important to talk about that love letter <clears throat> that Alicia Garza wrote to black people and how our sister Patrice Cullors amplified that the work that was being done um, offline to really set into place a movement, not a moment. And then there were people like us who were boots on the ground, who remember how the moment when George Zimmerman was acquitted in the murder of Trayvon Martin hit us as mothers, as black women and black people in this world. Um, my own trajectory was that I was out running errands and folks will remember, I, I always call it like our um, Martin Luther King assassination moment or our Kennedy moment, right? I know exactly where I was and what I was doing when I learned that Trayvon Martin's murderer got off. My brother called me and said he got off and they're giving him his gun back. And I just remember this fog mm. overtake me and um, guided me back. And um, not that I'm anything like a Joanne Robinson. She is, you know, one of my sheroes, right? But I read often about Joanne Robinson, who was the black woman professor at Alabama State who set off the Montgomery bus boycott when Mrs. Rosa Parks was arrested. Um, and I think about how she got news of that while she was running errands. She was shopping in the Piggly Wiggly and someone told her what happened and she continued to shop. She went home. She cooked for her family and put her children to bed. And in many ways, I feel like I was kind of living in that shadow. I swept my children up. We were doing errands together. 
came home, cooked them dinner. My son at the time was very, very young. He was um, three years old. And so I had to bathe my children and put them to bed and find someone to sit with them. And then I called over three other mamas. We called ourselves the Mama Brigade. And we sat on my couch and said, okay, we got to get in these streets. And we went out to a park that is known as Lamarck Park. It's the Black cultural hub here in Los Angeles. And there, there were hundreds, if not thousands of people milling around in the park. And um, at a certain point, I remember this young sister in the park saying, I don't want to stay in this park. I want to march. And I always tell people, you know, the first task, the first um, purchase you make as an organizer is a bullhorn. So I had the bullhorn. <laughs> and she said, um, I want to march. So I whipped out my bullhorn and I said, okay, so we going to march. And we began marching and um, we marched north of Crenshaw Boulevard and um, we engaged in a um, shut stuff down. I'll use those words, shut stuff down um, disposition <laughs> um, for the next three days. And for three days, we really were about disrupting what we saw as sites of white supremacist capitalism. So um, Hollywood and Highland, the 10 freeway, the um, subway to the sea, we were making sure that the pain and heartache that we and rage that we felt as black people wasn't just confined to our people in our community, um, but also that we could visit a little bit of that on who we saw as the perpetrators of the violence, white supremacist capitalists. And so we did that for three days. And on the third day of protest, I got a text that originated with our sister friend, um, Patrice Colors, that invited us to meet at St. Elmo Village at 9 p.m. St. Elmo Village is a black artist community here in Los Angeles. And that's when under the light of the moon, um, we, and when I say we, um, it had extended beyond the Mama Brigade, right? I also had called out many of my students um, from Pan-African Studies at Cal State LA. Under the light of the moon, about 15 of my students and friends along with about 15 of Patrice's artist friends and comrades and organizing met and circled up and pledged to build a movement, not a moment. And that was the start of Black Lives Matter. That was um, what we committed ourselves and our lives to. And I know that something similar happened in the Bay Area, um, you know, right about the same moment that there were boots on the ground. So there was absolutely the story online and that ran parallel to a boots on the ground story. Yeah, here in Oakland, uh, APTP was active and we were holding a rally uh, in Oscar Grant Plaza. And I remember having chalk and it was after the love letter and the hashtag, you know, hit and we were, we were hashtagging it in chalk. And um, a couple days later, there was an APTP general meeting and I got a phone call that a, a group of black folks uh, were meeting at what used to be a, a black collective here in West Oakland and that I needed to come right away. And that was the beginning of the chapter here. And we would ultimately go on <laughs> with our first action of shutting stuff down, uh, which ended <laughs> up being the West Oakland BART train <laughs> um, uh, <laughs> on Black Friday. <laughs> um, 
And yeah, it, it, it popped off from there. Melina, talk about the initial leadership structure of Black Lives Matter and the formation of chapters across the country. Sure. So Black Lives Matter, really, we began building in 2013, and there were chapters that began to develop under the banner of Black Lives Matter. And it was actually in 2014 that the chapters came together during our first freedom ride out to Ferguson, which was a watershed moment that was really summoned into being by the murder of Mike Brown in Ferguson. So we were called out to Ferguson. And um, that's in August of 2014. And so there were probably close to a dozen chapters that had been building. Um, so we had the Bay Area chapter, the Los Angeles chapter. There was a chapter up in, I think, Portland um, that rode out with us. There was um, what was building in uh, the East Coast. So there was a New York chapter building and probably about a dozen chapters or so all met in Ferguson. And what we were committed to doing is thinking about what does it mean to build as Black Lives Matter? So Patrice and um, Alicia and others, Opal, had been in conversation with folks about birthing these chapters, but we really hadn't come together until Ferguson. And so we're operating as kind of a loosely um, guided set of uh, set of almost autonomous chapters. And after 2014 and going to Ferguson, um, I, along with the three co-founders, wrote something called the Guiding Principles. And um, we wrote these guiding principles. And when chapters joined, the existing chapters all pledged to abide by these guiding principles. And then new chapters began to develop after 2014. And we all agreed to adhere to these guiding principles, but the governance structure really was that the chapters operated semi-autonomously. And um, I remember, uh, I guess it was 2014, it may have been 2015, when we began pulling, to, it must've been 2014 because we began pulling together kind of network-wide calls and figuring out how to organize ourselves. We had one of the first coordinated events that we did across chapters was for Black Xmas, where we all agreed to shut things down, shut stuff down, shut down white supremacist capitalism mm -hmm. in the name of John Crawford, who was murdered inside of a Walmart store in Ohio. And we agreed to engage in that shutdown on the same day. But the chapters really had power to figure out how they wanted to get down. So in DC, they were really committed to healing justice. Um, LA, we wanted to do confrontation and really directly challenge police as most of what we did. And I know that the Bay Area was with us on that and really um, yeah. agreed with the shutdown model and the direct confrontation model. So each chapter really had its own personality, but we came together under that set of guiding principles. Yeah, and there have been rolling protests, you know, here in Oakland from since 2009. And so this really just, the momentum continued and there was this nonstop in the streets with brutal response, brutal response from law enforcement um, here and, and everywhere across the country. 
so there was this this experiment, you know, in, in lateral leadership, and and that came with rifts and struggle, and and folks trying to figure out the relationship, you know, what who was leadership, what leadership meant, uh, what was actual autonomy. Walk walk me through, Melina. Um, you know, o Opal at one point transitioned out. Sister Alicia at one point transitioned out, um, and then we've got Patrice who was holding the organization and and talk to me about the founding of Black Lives Matter Global Network and talk to me about the creation of the branches of BLM. Sure, so Opal, now known as IO, transitions out really early on. Um, and then Alicia, um, a few years later, um, Patrice had planned to and actually did transition out at the top of 2020. That was the plan. We threw a big going away party for her and everything. Yes. Um, and then the George Floyd moment in the movement um, pops off. And we call Patrice back and really say that we need her leadership. We need her in the seat at the Global Network Foundation. So the Global Network Foundation began as kind of a fiscally sponsored piece of Black Lives Matter. We started off, and it's very important for folks to understand that we started off with no money, with no real platform, and you know, started off just based on people power. Right. Then slowly resources started coming in. And by slowly, I mean like the biggest grants we were getting I remember when we were all dancing when Jay-Z and Beyonce um, gave us $250,000, I believe it was. And we were going, whoo, that's a month, right? And the, uh, again, that was when we were 40 chapters strong. <laughs> so $250,000 really was not that much money, but it was the most money we'd ever seen, right? So there had to be a way to get resources into the work. Most of the work among chapters was funded locally. So most of it was that we all skipped going out to lunch. Um, we all ate beans and rice or for my household, top ramen a whole lot, right? And that's how the movement was funded. But there were some resources that were put in place. And so the Global Network Foundation begins as kind of this fiscally sponsored entity to receive those resources. And Patrice is at the helm. By 2020, um, the Global Network Foundation had um, filed for its own 501c3. And now as we're kind of looking at and researching um, legal docs, I guess uh, the, the formation of the 501c3 actually happened earlier, but it wasn't operating independently um, until about 2020. And so as that was happening, there was also a lot of conversation and at times contention among the chapters of Black Lives Matter, how do we wanna move forward? And I wanna say that because contention is not bad, conflict is not bad, it's how we kind of deal with that conflict. We didn't know if we wanted to um, be a 501c3. I was one of the people who said, no, we get to fly under the radar as not really existing when we don't have a legal entity to house us, right? And I thought that was really brilliant because I wasn't thinking about money. I was thinking about everybody trying to sue us, but if we don't exist, they don't get to sue us, right? If we don't legally exist, they don't get to sue us. 
And so there was all of this kind of conversation. Patrice um, is at the helm then of the Global Network Foundation. By 2020, she has become the executive director, which was really foreign to a lot of us because we didn't believe in executive directors and presidents and chairs and all of that. But it's kind of the evolution of what happened. We had already begun thinking about, well, what do we want to do as the boots on the ground? And so the boots on the ground said, well, we need an entity to house us, especially as Patrice transitioned out of leadership. There was a consultant that was put in place and we often disagreed with her. And so we said, well, we need our own kind of structure. And so we birthed Black Lives Matter grassroots as kind of the umbrella for boots on the ground, for chapters and also what we did beyond just our local chapter work. And so Black Lives Matter grassroots is what we begin to call ourselves. Again, we don't form as a legal entity, but we are, that doesn't, you know, legal status doesn't, our lack of legal status doesn't negate our existence. And so we start to move in that way. Patrice transitions out finally in May of 2021 as a result of many of the hits that she's taking. And I think that was probably the first time that you and I didn't try to talk her out of it because we care for her as a human being more than her labor and what she puts into the movement. And so we wanted her to be safe and healthy and allow that transition to take place without too much uh, kind of asking her to come back. We're talking to Dr. Melina Abdullah, co-founder of the Los Angeles chapter of Black Lives Matter and co-founder and director of Black Lives Matter Grassroots. I want to talk a little bit about some of the hits that Patrice took. I don't, I, I, we can't skip over that part, right? Um, mm-hmm. So there was all these accusations about mismanagement of money. It was revealed that a, that a, a mansion had been had been purchased. And, and, and there's a few things I want to say, and then I want you to respond, right? One is, I think it's really important that folks hear what Melina was saying about, like, at first there were no resources. There, there, there used to be no money in this work. This is a new dynamic. Uh, for for Black Lives Matter, for organizations across the country. APTP uh, didn't have a dime for the first eight years of our uh, existence, right? And so it's it's the figuring out of that. I also want to say that it is not unusual for organizations to to, to purchase property, actually. Um, And my understanding is that the purchase of that property uh, was supposed to be a retreat center for for artists. But I also want to be clear, Melina, because you took some hits too. You didn't know that that purchase had happened. Is that correct? Right. I have never had any role in the Global Network Foundation and actually have been to that house. I wouldn't describe it as a mansion. It's a beautiful house. But I've been to that house. It was presented to me as a safe house. Um, So I was told it's a safe house. I was at that house because my life and the lives of my children are regularly at risk. I think the first time I went there was the first time that I was swatted um, by LAPD. And I was, my children and I were whisked away to this so-called safe house. When asked, we were told that that house belonged to a white benefactor. So we had no idea that the Global Network Foundation owned that house. And we were not a part of the decision-making I also want to say that I don't disagree with the idea that nonprofits should own property. I think as we live in a world 
where nothing is assured. Owning property is one way to kind of stabilize organizations. I also believe that the organizationally owned profits should, uh, uh, the organizationally owned property should be held for the good of the movement. So I actually right. don't agree with what they say the purpose of it is. I think it should be Black Lives Matter was born to end state sanctioned violence. The house should be a space that helps with that mission. But um, yes, so yes, I took hits, Patrice took hits, and I didn't have a role in the purchase of that property. Like I said, we were gonna set some records straight uh, as we have this conversation today. So yes, so Patrice takes takes lots of hits. Some of them were really, really, really egregious, right? Uh, the, the targets that were placed on the, the backs of black women as this was happening w was, was scary and, and, and atrocious. So Patrice leaves, there's a transition plan uh, put into place. This is my understanding, right? I'm not in the inner workings of this, which is why you're here to walk us through. Um, part of that transition plan is this, this person is put at the helm. Uh, who is Shamalaya Bowers? Am I saying his name right, Shamalaya? His name that he goes by now is Shalomia Bowers, but he was um, born as Christman Bowers. And some folks have started, the reason I'm, um, I'm not trying to, what is it, dead name him, but um, some folks have started hitting me up about a track record that he had when he was Chrisman Bowers. Um, and so I want people to know that this is the same person. Patrice is gone. She's put a transition plan in place. Uh, Shalomia is, is at the helm. What do we know about him and what was supposed to happen? Right. So Shalomia Bowers, even when Patrice was still executive director, she named him her deputy director, right? So she was the one to make the decisions. He was to carry out the work. And I, you know me, Kat, I tend to get along with most people. Um, yep. Even my enemies, I tend to get along with them personally. I just don't like their politics, right? So um, Shalomia Bowers um, and I actually got along, right? Patrice presented him as somebody who wasn't, you know, moving based on ego, didn't want to get in front of the cameras. He still doesn't want to get in front of the cameras, but now we know it's for another reason. And um, as she was stepping back, she set forward a transition plan, which was sent to both Shalomia and me by email. And it said, um, initially she named Makani Tamba and Monifa Bandele as senior executives who would guide through this transition. Um, Bowers made sure that those two people were never onboarded. Um, so he didn't provide them with the information that they needed to responsibly onboard to the Global Network Foundation. He wouldn't show them the uh, financials. And so, you know, them being very seasoned organizers, they said, we're not jumping in something where we can't see anything, right? But also the gist of the transition plan was that all of the resources that had been received by the Global Network Foundation would be transferred over to Black Lives Matter grassroots. Black Lives Matter grassroots was already um, leading the political um, direction of Black Lives Matter. We were the face of Black Lives Matter. Um, we ran the social medias. So uh, most of the posting that you would see done was, was me and others in the grassroots team doing the posting. But of course, Bowers, who was a paid consultant, 
had access to all of these things. And so he had access to the bank accounts. In fact, when um, Patrice stepped back, he was the only person with access to the bank accounts is what I'm understanding. Um, he had access to the social medias because most organizations that are the size of Black Lives Matter or even smaller have um, consultants that do some of their social media posting for them. So he had access to that. And what he has chosen to do is basically say, we're not giving any of the resources over. And when we challenged him, he locked us out of the social medias, locked us out of the email lists, um, locked us out most recently of my own email address. Um, so Melina at blacklivesmatter.com is still on and receiving emails, but I don't have access to them. He does though. And so these are the things that we're seeing now with Bowers who in March said to me, as we were moving this transition, he said to me, I intend to run the Global Network Foundation indefinitely. You're listening to Law Order. I'm Kat Brooks. We're in conversation with Dr. Melina Abdullah. We're talking about Black Lives Matter. It's, it's history, clearing up some, some misinformation. And M Melina, so he, he tells you this, and how do you and the Black Lives Matter Grassroots Network respond? How do you try to address uh, the situation initially? Right. So Bowers, one of the things that we did know, um, because we had begun the transition process, um, I did see some of the financials. I saw that in the first reporting period alone, his firm made $2.2 million in contracts. Um, it was the highest expenditure for Black Lives Matter Global Network Foundation. I saw these massive amounts, multi-million dollar um, so he was 2.2 million. There was another that was, I think, 1.6 million for another consulting firm and just massive amounts of money being spent. I also saw a few that looked like payoffs, a few expenditures that looked like payoffs that were in those financials. And so when he said he intends to run Black Lives Matter indefinitely, the Global Network Foundation indefinitely, my immediate response is to go to Patrice and go to the other members of the leadership team. Collectively, we decided to put what had been mostly verbal in writing. And so we wrote a letter and it was framed as requests. We want these things. And there were 15 things that basically break down into three buckets, right? We want the dollars. We want the platforms that includes the email lists at the time, they were also holding an email list of over 2 million people. And we were still on the social media. So we didn't anticipate that as being a demand. Um, and the third thing we wanted is um, for them to stop representing themselves as Black Lives Matter. The Bowers team, um, again, is made up of consultants and um, his employees were mostly non-Black, and we didn't think it was appropriate. None of them come from movement. Um, Bowers himself had never been to a protest until I kind of challenged him to come to one of ours where he stayed for about 20 minutes. Um, but other than that, he's never been on the front lines or even attended a protest, much less lead one. Um, never been an organizer, but it, again, is a highly paid consultant. And we just 
know and were adamant that the movement needs to belong and the resources of the movement need to belong to the people who birthed, built, and fueled the movement. And so we wrote this letter. His response to receiving the letter was immediately locking us out of the social media that we had built. You're listening to Londa Soder. I'm Kat Brooks in conversation with Dr. Melina Abdullah. There were a lot of back and forth. Uh, you tried to do it quietly, but then last Friday, organizers from across the country and you and Black Lives Matter Global Network held a press conference. Why did you go public and what are the demands now? Right. So um, we tried to be quiet about it for six months. We tried every strategy imaginable. We tried calling him. I tried reminding him that we're friends. Right. I um, we had a um, private letter that many folks signed. Right. Everybody from families of those who were killed and harmed by police to um, different Black Lives Matter chapters to um, other organizers who are on the front lines and do work all signed this letter. Over 100 Black movement leaders signed this letter that never went public. We sent it directly to him. And we're very clear that he needs to step down. We tried um, sending him lawyer letters. So our lawyer said, give him back the social medias and we can mediate everything else. And um, he refused. I even sat with his legal team. I spent three entire days sitting with his legal team, trying to talk with them about what it is we want and need. And none of that worked. Um, I think some people know, and you know, that I, I didn't want to go public because I know it damages Black Lives Matter as a whole. The reputation of Black Lives Matter as a whole um, is at stake. And people don't understand the difference between Black Lives Matter Global Network Foundation, which is now in the hands of these usurpers, right? And Black Lives Matter Grassroots, which is on our way to Tampa, Florida, to end qualified immunity and stand with the family of Andrew Joseph III. And so just overall, my aunties see Black Lives Matter and that's it. So we didn't want to go public, but on Thursday, September 1st, we wound up going public and about 70 folks stood with us. They affirmed the work of Black Lives Matter grassroots we had over a dozen families of those who were killed by police standing with us, um, as well as folks um, who know people like the um, Dr. Youssef Salam from the exonerated Central Park Five flew all the way out from Atlanta to be with us. Our own brother James from APTP up in the Bay drove down with his two young children um, six or seven hours to get to LA and stand with us. And so- In the heat. In the heat. <laughs> It was 90 something degrees down here, right? And so it was so important for people to stand with us and to say the work of Black Lives Matter has to continue and the resources that are being unjustly held, unrighteously held by Bowers and um, the Global Network Foundation have to be returned to the people. And so that's the demand now. We don't wanna go to court and every day is a new day. And if Bowers tomorrow were to say, you know what, you're right, here you go, then you know what, that's fine, it's all good, we wish him no harm. But we don't want to allow him, we can't allow him, if we're gonna stand in integrity, we can't allow him to run off with resources that hardworking people contributed. My mama donates to Black Lives Matter. 
and I say this often, you know, my mama is a retired elementary school teacher. She taught in Richmond Unified or uh, uh, West Contra Costa County Unified in um, one of the worst elementary schools or un most underfunded elementary schools in the whole state. She worked her whole life. She never shopped for fancy clothes. She still shops at the thrift store and, and calls it Nordstrom's, right? At 70 something years old. My mother donated her <laughs> dollars to Black Lives Matter. I can't stand in integrity and allow him to run off with my mother's money, with your mother's money, with our folks' money who believe so fervently in the movement that they donated what little they had in order to invest in Black freedom struggle and they see Black Lives Matter as being that. Two more things here and then we're gonna move on to current uh, work. Uh, because again, uh, setting records straight, Melina, how much of those millions went into your pocket? None, none. So for the first, we're now over nine years into Black Lives Matter. For the first eight years, there was no money. And so, you know, I did it as what I call my sacred duty. In 2020, um, there was some money that came in. And so I want to be fully transparent that the folks who put our bodies on the line, who form now the leadership core of Black Lives Matter grassroots, we agreed to start um, receiving, and this was at the urging of everybody else, um, a small stipend, but it is not my job. This is my sacred duty. The bulk of what I earn to support myself is as a professor at Cal State LA. So it's really important. I want to be straight, like over the last year, I have started receiving a small, very modest stipend um, because also a lot of the stuff that we used to do to earn money on the side, that's all dried up. When you're on the front lines, no city or county wants to pay you as a consultant, which I used to do to offset my public sector salary. And so these are the things that have happened and we have decided now that there are resources to um, kind of offset some of the costs we incur for doing work. But it's really Bowers that is receiving, again, $2.2 million in a single reporting period. How did Bowers respond to your press conference? Um, he retaliated. He retaliated just as he has for the last six months. So every time we make a demand, um, there is retaliation. So we send a request letter, he cuts us off of social medias, right? Um, we say we want this back and he cuts off my security, right? Um, and so he retaliated when we did the press conference. So I wanna reiterate that we made this decision. We filed the lawsuit, we made a collective decision to go public because we had no other choice. And um, what Bowers has chosen to do is cast it as a personal issue. And so he actually is now using the social medias that Black Lives Matter built in order to personally attack me. And so if people go to blacklivesmatter.com or go to the social medias that were once run by the people, the BLK Lives Matter social media, there are active um, accusations, false accusations 
out about me personally. So it doesn't say grassroots. It says Melina Abdullah. And, um, you know, again, he is making me, he's, it, it's dangerous for me, right? That anytime something like this happens, we talked about hits. We know that the violence that comes, comes as a result of these kinds of hits that fuels violence against me. And I think that was his intent. The person that he's hired is an attorney. So they used to have, and they still have, on retainer and who still works with them is an attorney named Ezra Reese, who has ties to the Democratic Party and to the Clintons in particular. Um, he's a white attorney, Ezra Reese. Um, I think they thought that's not a good look. So they went and hired one of those happens to be black people, someone named Byron McLean. <laughs> <laughs> um, someone named Byron McLean, who has very close ties to police. He's a former US attorney and he specializes in white collar crime. So this is the type of per person you hire when you're committing white collar crime. And so they hired this guy, Byron McLean, um, to really, as I start getting information, and again, people have been really generous in sending in information. I'm getting information about how Byron McLean actually um, was contracted by LAPD for some time how he was appointed to the LA Police Commission subcommittee. So he knows very well who I am. The police commission, some people will know, were part of trying to prosecute me and put me in jail for three and a half years. So Byron McLean has yeah. linkages to all of that. And so some of the attacks that are coming say that they come from the attorney for the Global Network Foundation, who is this pro cop happens to be black man um, I always say, don't never trust a black man with no facial hair. He doesn't have any facial hair. Um, and <laughs> um, the, these are the people who are coming. And that's been the response to our lawsuit is to really put a literal target on my back individually. You're listening to Law and Disorder. I'm Kat Brooks in conversation with Dr. Melina Abdullah, director of the Black Lives Matter um, Grassroots Network. Now, all of this is happening while the work is still happening, police are still killing us. People are still protesting. So the grassroots network made of all of these uh, you know, chapters uh, across the country are still responding to state violence while you're also fighting for the soul of the organization. Uh, Melina, spend some time talking about the work um, of the chapters that are, that, that, that are, I don't know if you're still calling them chapters, but the folks that are in the grassroots network that they are currently engaged in while all this is happening. Sure. So again, that's part of what's trying, what they're trying to do, right, is derail the work, right? And it's important that we uplift, that we can't let the work be derailed. My mantra that I try to live by is just do the work and live as righteously as possible. And so we are doing the work. And, you know, unfortunately, we have to combat this fight. We have to fight for the soul of Black Lives Matter is what I say we're doing. And we have to do that simultaneous to the work on the ground. We still do have 26 chapters in Black Lives Matter. And on Monday um, and from September 12th to the 22nd, many of our chapters are meeting up in Tampa, Florida to be with Deanna Hardy Joseph and Andrew Joseph Jr., who finally got a day in court um, after the killing of their son, Andrew Joseph III, at the hands of um, Hillsborough County Police. He was just 14 years old. 
It's taken eight and a half years to get this day in court. And much of that is because of qualified immunity. And so um, we're lifting up Andrew Joseph III's name to say we have to end qualified immunity. So that's work that we're doing. During the weekend, between those two weeks, um, Baba Akili and I and some other folks from other chapters are headed up to Buffalo, New York to do work on the ground there with people who are building there in the aftermath of the slaughter of 10 of our folks inside that Topps grocery store at the hands of a white supremacist. And so this will now be our fifth or sixth trip to Buffalo to challenge the idea that there's only two choices to either not have groceries in the black community or reopen the Topps grocery store where they're literally traversing over the spilled blood of our people in order to get their frozen peas, right? And so we're doing work on what alternative economic structures can look like in Buffalo, New York. Um, we're also directly challenging police associations that are not unions. We've declared um, Labor Week instead of just Labor Day. And we're directly challenging poli police associations that protect killer cops, that bully and bribe elected officials, and that I say pilfer the public purse, right? So Oakland, you always tell me the number is even higher in Oakland when you think about the share of the city budget that police get as opposed to the share that actually goes to the things that really make us safe. And so Black Lives Matter grassroots continues to do work on the ground. We can't stop, in the words of Deanna Hardy Joseph, um, we can't stop and we won't stop, right? And so we're gonna continue to do this work and we encourage everybody to jump into the real work. We need boots on the ground and they can find out what we're doing by following BLM Grassroots, BLM Grassroots on all social media as we try to rebuild platforms so we can get messaging out to our folks on the ground about what's going on and what we're doing. Dr. Melina Abdullah, we're gonna leave it there. I wanna thank you so much for having this conversation with me. Is there anything that I didn't ask you that you want the people to know? I want folks to know that, you know, this is not uncommon, right? When we look at movements that have really been the precursors to Black Lives Matter, and I really appreciate you, Kat, for lifting up that, you know, in Oakland, 2009, with the murder of Oscar Grant on that BART platform, that predates Black Lives Matter. Um, we have movements that predate Black Lives Matter. We are, um, life is breathed into Black Lives Matter by movements that walked before us. And what we see at every turn is attempts to derail those movements. So this is not new. Um, I don't know who all has their hands and what's going on. I think it's probably much bigger than Bowers or it could just be Bowers. Um, but what we've learned and what people like Baba Hank Jones, who is absolutely my movement father and spiritual father, he's one of the San Francisco Eight, what he reminds us of is that we have to, one, kill our egos, and two, again, just do the work. And so we encourage everybody to just do the work. We're not gonna be derailed. And I would just um, offer that as my closing thought to just encourage everybody, you know, they may have the money and we hope to get it back. We're gonna fight to get it back, um, but we have the people, we have the people. And so we need every person to hop in on this work. Again, follow BLM Grassroots to hop in, join up with 
either a Black Lives Matter chapter or a sister organization like APTP in the Bay Area to just do the work we have to, our people demand it. You're listening to Law and Disorder. I'm your host, Kat Brooks. We have been in conversation with Dr. Melina Abdullah, a professor and the chair of the Pan-African Studies at Cal State Los Angeles. She is also the co-founder of the Los Angeles chapter of Black Lives Matter and co-founder and director of Black Lives Matter Grassroots. Thank you so much for joining us today. You've been listening to Law and Disorder, a podcast where we expose the cracks in our system, agitate for resistance, and collectively build a new world in which all of us can thrive. That's it for this episode, family. You can find more information about our topics and guests in this episode's show notes. Law and Disorder is produced at KPFA. That's listener-supported radio on the Pacifica Network. The show is produced by Jesse Strauss and hosted by me, Kat Brooks. Our theme music was composed by Steve Raskin of Fort Knox 5. If you like what you heard, please follow us on social media at Law and Dis. That's D-I-S. And subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Feel free to holler at us about something you heard or send us a show idea at lawanddisorder at kpfa.org. You can also find our content live at 8 a.m. weekdays on KPFA. That's 94.1 FM in the Bay Area. Our show and all of KPFA's programs are funded exclusively by you, the listener. And if you're in a position to support us, please donate today at kpfa.org. Take care of yourself and take care of each other. We all we got, fam. Peace.